said you wanted to know how to get to Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright. And he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York, and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said it was the first American city that wasn't European, was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, because, you know, I wrote the book, and there's certainly a I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps it's something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles thing, about the geographical energy here. That's this little spit of land, which is artificially maintained between this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here, just the south of Santa Barbara, and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of... Um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people s- settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? 
Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats, you know, that, the, that's, that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where they're today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep. And, and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago, because you grew up here. This, this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about, if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship, at least maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad and his brother, Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then the on the passports, it says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the Chubichev Russia was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression. And she didn't speak English very well. And so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got got out of the army, and he went to a junior college. And then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, I think he I think he might have forged his uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while. Then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz, who was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So then before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like, one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill, and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore. It was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island, and the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there like five square blocks of Jews living there. And we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the uh, the neighbor was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it's called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of the Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there. And Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there. And uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out of there. Several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet. And my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter, David Mamet, and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in, and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school, I moved in with my uh, dad and my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is, psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old-school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a little bit of an old school father. But the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and change into his pajamas and a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I I remember, you know, like like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really bold they do the importance of being earnest you know but Sickinger was doing the brig by uh, 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 Kenneth Brown and the three penny opera and the Maurice Scal plays and he just kept everybody there all night rehearsing and we all knew I don't know how he knew but we did that when we were doing those plays there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world it was just it was just pure love and, and you know people hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob it was it was marvelous one of your colleagues said we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene what made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared the audience didn't care they were profoundly indifferent to everything we did there is real freedom in that isn't there David well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that, because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not, that's, I think that's a little bit poetic, because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter, Patty Cox, we had our theater over on, on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, hey, there was a good play last month, Dave. They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes. 
but rather we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but there are exceptions. And a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making. And the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great, screen, great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, how did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians. And uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemirovich Danchenko, and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one. A young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hands, she raises her head. Shot two, uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying, right? So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict, and the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention, but the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting, but one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher, Stanford Meisner, were the, both the babies of the group theater. And, you know, they were both started out actors didn't do well. So they became directors and theoreticians and they formed two schools, uh, the Meisner school and the Strasberg school that were an attempt on their part, legitimate attempt to understand what acting was because they were drawn to it. They loved it. They couldn't do it. They tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, I don't think he did it on purpose. He just got very, very lucky, is he had a, a, a beginning reputation. And so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. 
So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, right? So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a, um, a codependence, uh, a folly I do between the teacher and, and the student. And the, the teacher has to you know, pretend he's teaching something, he may think he is. And the student has to pretend he's learning something, he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame. And so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say, fuck you, I'll figure it out myself, or to say, let me try harder. So what you see is a lot of actors who, quote, study the, quote, method, trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesman in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. Turn to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who was trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience, which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. 
Yeah, well, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was. But I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience. Because if you're writing for a teacher, you've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you a, like. Billy Wilder said, individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. You know, that, that, and when, when you got to, when your life, when you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal, you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And, he, and Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday, and we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour, OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent, and you write about courage, and you say this. You said, a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height, it is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people, I, I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book. And so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see, because what I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're in effect rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do those rhetorical question? There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit on and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Kelvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just he, he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and then all the mystery's gone and, and, and don't tidy it up for me and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, they're just the worst questions for artists and they're even worse for the audience, David. By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a it's something that I think is in short supply, and I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in in Three Kings where it's a George Clooney and he's head of a he's in charge of some platoon and some go, about to go into combat and the kid says I'm scared and George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the acting and get the courage afterward, and the kid says that's. F and Joyce says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid-2000s about being Jewish and what that means. Um, talk about this ex exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is, uh, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her 
one side of her family, she grew up in Scotland, her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, well, we have to have a Jewish wedding. I said, well, what an odd thing to say. Well, well why? Why is that? She said, well, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it was like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There's just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews, especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is, this is a magnificent religion. And all, you know, all of us red diaper babies who said, oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit or the magnificence of the American Indian or the magnificence of the African American or the blah, blah, blah. Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out uh, in effect that it does. And a pretty old one too, David, a pretty old one. And yeah. it's ama- I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once-promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open-and-shut med-mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, not a a marble statue, or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are They are, in fact, a prayer, a fervent and a frightened prayer. 
prayer. In my religion, they say act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you if, if we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and, uh, and uh, Jewish literature and the, and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article was the original title of the article was political civility, because I, my rabbi at the time had been speaking very. Uh, very vehemently about uh, about respecting each other's opinion and uh, uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says, yes, that's true. And so I wrote an article called Political Civility. And in the article, I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain-dead liberal. I said, well, that's just not civil, bubbity-bubbity-boo. So the Village Voice takes it, and they put a scare headline on it, yep. why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal, and all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction, because this, this book, it's about so much, and I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place, it's about a time, and I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago, and he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago, 
Well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something or other in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while, I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the south side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of... But those were kind of like the the bumping posts, if you will, of of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yeah, and and the the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's you know I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said when the progression of incident incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That true still for this and and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really really different because you get you get to muck about, you know, you get to expatiate a little bit. And uh, but there's two things that the 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 they're equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important in a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic, and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a an okay play, but you're not going to have a good, and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line, each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. Yep. You can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut. And, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show, I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot. and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing the Svengali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. 
Some of them are time service, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remembered all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years. And every single one of them had a moment and a memory. And it was all the same. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to dig deeper. It wasn't the actual X's and O's. It was something so much more spiritual. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And it was this guy seeing these guys' capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew. And uh, I just think there are very few people who have that gift. And you had it. And I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so th- that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm having such a good time. (laughs) It was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing And by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up at a store near you or go online. And again, the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge. 1997, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride, and Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here's a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. You're damn right. 
This is Our American Stories, and again, the novel, Chicago, and the author, David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, and they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story, because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical. There were more heroes, more things to to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts, from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore, and and, uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene, the European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry. And here I came along, 
And I had a sports car, and I come up with a tweed jacket, and I zip into my car with a bag of ties, and I go to the stores around the, around the area. And I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too, helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style of Wall Street bankers, Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy you know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired. The thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream, you know, in the reality, of, you know, of, uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And... I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket, here's a jacket, my shoulders come out here now, and, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a what you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy. You couldn't walk into a store. No store has had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they, had a, they weren't wild. But they were... They were it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's. You couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. Now, a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, in England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket. It had flair on the side vents. So one thing is the product. The other thing is, is where it goes. A man gets dressed. He goes, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England. It, they look great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hack, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well... It existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, 
Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love, and boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in his sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did. Because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties. And soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time magazine, I knew Time magazine was coming out and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time magazine. And the two 
the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side the impossible thing happened on Time magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not. It was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family. I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, "I can't believe this." I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history. Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style. A style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by 
uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the 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 Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a you think of certain um, images that that represent something that are never dying. I always like country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of of heroes in a way that um, had a, had a something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing for me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain to and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I worked with that came at the office said, it was from another company, said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and it's so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories.
Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1999, Shel Silverstein died. We're about to bring you his life story. You know his work. You may not know his name. And what a story this is, folks. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now, on to the story of Shel Silverstein. Here's Greg Hengler. Poet W.H. Auden once said, There are good books which are only for adults. There are no good books which are only for children. Children's picture books matter because they're a form of our first impression of literature and become the gateway towards our appetites for the written word and our knowledge of the world. This most distilled form of art expresses basic truths about life in such a poetic way that it assumes the form of intellectual mother's milk. The stylistic eccentricities of Marie Sendak, Dr. Seuss, and Shel Silverstein form the bedrock of our childhood lexicon. Shel's story is arguably the most eccentrically interesting among the big three. Actor-filmmaker James Franco is set to direct and star in the biopic centered on Shel Silverstein. And you're about to find out why. Born in 1930 on the northwest side of Chicago, Sheldon Allen Silverstein grew up in a second-story apartment crammed with relatives. His Jewish parents, an immigrant father from Eastern Europe, and a Chicago-born mother opened an unsuccessful bakery on the heels of the Great Depression. Though Silverstein's mother encouraged his early knack for drawing, his father made it clear that he was expected to join the floundering family business. Silverstein discovered his passion for drawing when he was five. The lonely, eccentric kid spent his K-12 years drawing, reading, and listening to the radio. Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. (laughs) They were his comfort and refuge from the perpetual boredom of school and his increasingly wrathful father. After a few unsuccessful attempts at college, he explained, I didn't get much attention from the girls, and I didn't learn much. Those are the two worst things that can happen to a guy. But this delay in gratification would later reveal itself as a blessing in disguise. By the time I could get the girls, I already knew how to write poems and draw pictures. Thank God I was able to develop these things which I could keep before I got the goodies that were my first choice. While serving in Japan and Korea, he found an unexpected outlet as an army cartoonist. When he was discharged and unemployed, Silverstein began submitting cartoons to magazines while hawking peanuts and hot dogs to fans at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Let's go, let's go. 
His break came in 1956 when he visited the offices of a startup magazine for men and met its editor, himself an avid cartoonist and army veteran, Hugh Hefner. During those Playboy years, Silverstein shuttled back and forth between Chicago and downtown New York. He frequented folk clubs and began making his own music, scribbling away songs on the back of cocktail napkins and tablecloths, performing folk and jazz numbers in a low, gravelly voice. Silverstein was a prolific perfectionist. In 1964 alone, he published three children's books and one book for adults. Among them was The Giving Tree, whose breakaway success caught his publisher, who had printed a measly run of 7,000 copies, by surprise. Sales of The Giving Tree doubled every year in the decade following its publication. They have since approached 10 million copies in sales worldwide. Here's Shell reading The Giving Tree. Once there was a tree... And she loved the little boy. And every day the boy would come. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the tree was happy. But then time passes and the boy forgets about her. But time went by. One day, the boy, now a young man, returns asking for money. Not having any to offer him, the tree is happy to give him her apples to sell. She is likewise happy to give him her branches and later her trunk until there's nothing left of her but an old stump, which the old man or the boy proceeds to sit on. Come, boy. Come sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. This book has been described as one of the most divisive books in children's literature. The controversy concerns whether the relationship between the main characters, a boy and a tree, should be interpreted as positive, i.e. the tree gives the boy selfless love, or a negative, i.e. the boy and the tree have an abusive relationship. Lisa Rogak, in her biography on Silverstein, A Boy Named Shell, offered her take on The Giving Tree. Given Shell's disgust with the me-first attitude among the folk singers and other artists who were creating art as a form of self-analysis, He wrote it as a reaction to their own mushiness. Silverstein was continually asked to defend his children's picture book. It's just a relationship between two people. One gives and the other takes, he would often repeat. Every year, The Giving Tree appears on the list of top 10 children's books of all time. Silverstein said that he had never studied the poetry of others and had therefore developed his own quirky style. Shell was no coward, nor was his goal to please the most amount of people. Therefore, he was no fan of political correctness. Uh, 
there was a time that you take uh, Little Red Riding Hood, for example, the three little pigs, you know. There was a time when, I know when I read Little Red Riding Hood, she goes, you know, to the, to, you know, she gets the directions from the wolf and she goes to the grandmother's house and, and uh, the wolf's already been there and he's already eaten up the grandmother, you know. And uh, now an earlier edition than this had the wolf, he eats up the grandmother, the earliest edition, and then he eats up Little Red Riding Hood too. It was a moral story, you know. I don't know what the moral was, really, but it meant something. And uh, he eats the grandmother, and then he eats Red Riding Hood. Well, by the time I was reading the story, he eats the grandmother, but he doesn't quite manage to get Red Riding Hood down completely because the woodsman comes in and kills him. Then, as I was older, I read the book again, and what they turned it into this time was that he eats the grandmother... He doesn't get to Red Riding Hood, but the woodsman comes in and chops open the, the wolf's belly and the grandmother pops out, brand new. Well, now I think it is. He comes in, he doesn't even eat the grandmother altogether. He just scares her and she runs away, and then the hunter comes in. Well, you know, eventually, uh, you know, the hunter and the wolf and the grandmother are all going to sit around and play gin rummy. Shell wrote hundreds of poems and verses for children in best-selling collections like the fiercely imagined works... Where the Sidewalk Ends, and A Light in the Attic. Translated into more than 30 languages, Shell's books have sold over 30 million copies. And when we come back, more on the life of Shell Silverstein. Return to the life of Shel Silverstein. Let's pick up where we last left off. The Beatles were on the cover. The Beatles. Silverstein produced over 1,000 published songs, many of which have been used in TV shows and movies, including classics like Dr. Hook's The Cover of the Rolling Stone, which was featured in Almost Famous. Cameron Crowe's tender, semi-autobiographical film about going on tour with rock stars in the 1970s and writing about it for Rolling Stone magazine. Shell also wrote The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, which was featured in Thelma and Louise, and he was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe for his song, I'm Checking Out, sung by Meryl Streep in the film Postcards from the Edge. I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more, no more. The fearsome-looking, bald, bearded Jew wearing a long-flowing pirate shirt and leather jacket that Goodwill would have rejected was also adored by the country music community. Here in Topeka, the rain is a falling, the faucet is a dripping, and the kids are a ball. One of them is toddling, and one is a crawling, and one's on the way. He wrote One's on the Way and Hey Loretta, both hits for Loretta Lynn in 1971 and 1973. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell And I've got 25 minutes to go And 25 Minutes to Go, sung by Johnny Cash About a man on death row 
with each line counting down one minute closer to his execution. Well, I'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free with nine more minutes to go. But this ain't the movie, so forget about me. Eight more minutes to go. On February 23rd, 1969, the night before Johnny Cash was set to record his live album at San Quentin Prison, he held a party at his home. The evening ended as it usually did, with his friends trying out their latest songs. Bob Dylan sang Lay Lady Lay, Chris Christopherson sang Me and My Bobby McGee, and Shel Silverstein offered up A Boy Named Sue. Here's Johnny Cash's son, John Carter Cash. Shell brought my dad a poem named Boy Named Sue. And dad read it and he was and he laughed and he liked it. He put it in his pocket. And this was right before he went to San Quentin to record the, the live album there. He got on stage uh, for the live performance and he and basically remembered that poem in his pocket. He reached in and took it out and looked at it, turned around to the band and said, play something in A. And the band just began to play. And uh, just a little, you know, 12-bar uh, walking blues rhythm. And then Dad recited the lyric, first time he'd ever recited it live, ever. And it was recorded, and that was the big number one hit. Well, my daddy left home when I was... Here's Johnny Cash singing A Boy Named Sue for the first time at San Quentin Prison. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get rid, and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean. My fist got hard, my wits got keen. Roamed from town to town to hide my shame. But I made me a vow to the moon and stars. I'd search the honky tonks and bars and kill that man and give me that awful name. Well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July, and I'd just hit town, and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a groove. At an old saloon on a street of mud, there at a table, dealing stud, sat the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue. Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had, and I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old And I looked at him and my blood ran cold And I said, my name is Sue How do you do? How are you gonna die? Yeah, that's what I told him Well, I hit him hard right between the eyes And he went down, but to my surprise Come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear but I busted a chair right across his teeth And we crashed through the wall and into the street Kicking and a-gouging in the mud and the blood and the beard I tell you, I fought tougher men But I really can't remember when He kicked like a mule and he bit like a crocodile 
I heard him laugh and then I heard him cuss and he went for his gun to pull mine first. He stood there looking at me and I saw him smile and he said, son, this world is rough and if a man's gonna make it, he's gotta be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye and knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's that name that helped to make you strong. Yeah. Said, now you just fought one hell of a fight And I know you hate me and you got the right To kill me now and I wouldn't blame you if you do But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in the eye Cause I'm the that named you Sue Yeah, what could I do? What could I do? I got all choked up and I threw down my gun Called him a pawn, he called me a son And I come away with a different point of view And I think about him now and then Every time I try and every time I win And if I ever have a son I think I'm gonna name him Bill or George, anything but Sue I still ain't that When this song came out a few months later, it hit number one on the Billboard country charts for five weeks and spent three weeks at number two on the pop charts, just behind the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Women. Shell wrote A Boy Named Sue after hearing his close friend Gene Shepard, known for the film A Christmas Story, which he narrated and co-scripted, complain about being teased for his girl's name as a kid. Oh, fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. A boy named Sue managed to become one of the most referenced country songs of all time. On April Fool's Day, 1970, Johnny Cash sang a truncated version of A Boy Named Sue with Shell on the Johnny Cash Show. A lot of your writings have meant a great deal to me and... Uh, uh, for one song in particular that she wrote has been largely responsible for a lot of the success I've had lately. Oh. She wrote A Boy Named Sue. Among well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July and I'd just hit town and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon on a street of mud. Bad a table, dealing studs, well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had. I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was kind of bent, gray and old. I looked at him, my blood run cold. I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. <laughs> Shell's voice has been compared to everything from a creaking door or a rusty gate to the yelp made by a dog whose tail had been stepped on. <laughs> he agreed with the critique, although he liked the sound of his voice. Silverstein also co-wrote The Taker with Chris Christopherson, which was recorded by Waylon Jennings. He's a helper, Neil Helper. Open the doors that she can't on her own. Shell also advised Bob Dylan on album lyrics for what turned out to be Blood on the Tracks. 
released in 1975. Silverstein also wrote plays. He even co-wrote the screenplay Things Change with legendary playwright David Mamet. On May 10, 1999, Shel Silverstein died at age 68 of a heart attack in Key West, Florida. He is buried in West Lawn Cemetery in Norridge, Illinois. From best-selling children's book author to Grammy-winning, Oscar-nominated songwriter, Shel Silverstein's unique imagination and bold brand of humor are beloved by countless adults and children all over the world. And great job as always, Greg. And what a story about a great Chicago voice. And that Shel Silverstein and David Mamet worked together. Thank goodness they did. Shel Silverstein's story, in a way an American story, about storytelling, here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. David Mamet's story, another great Chicago writer, is there as well. Take a listen if you can. Share the link with friends.